uh, in Zephaniah one more time, and we will be in Zephaniah one more time, but it'll be next week. So if you came this week expecting to be in Zephaniah, it's a hook, you see? I got you to come back next week. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning at verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And it said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we are your people in the midst of this world, and we ask you that you would help us today, right now, in these few minutes that while we are citizens of another realm, we might, in fact, be the best citizens of this realm. Lord, help us to that end, we pray. Grant us your spirit. Till up the soil of our hearts and incline our wills to pursue those things that you would have us pursue that would be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. I think I need to say at the beginning that while we have um, focused, and I've asked that we focus some attention on CareNet, which is a local ministry to women with undesired, unwanted pregnancies and their families, and they provide other services as well, um, I ought to just acknowledge that there are any number of ministries in this community, ministries that this church has a connection to, um, that provide incredible services and ministries in this county, in this community. Um, And you know, somebody said years ago, this is at a missions conference uh, where I was was present, somebody said, you know, if if you were to remove every ministry, every agency in a community, that provided services to people in need and that had a connection, some connection to the gospel of Christ, most of what you see in the ways of ministries to people in need would disappear. 
It would disappear. And I just want to I just want to acknowledge that Habitat for Humanity and the Source and the Women's Refuge of Vero Beach and CareNet and any number of other ministries have direct connections to the gospel of Christ. And these are people in each case whose hearts have been inclined to meet the needs of particular people because their need, their deepest need, has been met by Christ. I, I just I want us to be sure that we have the connection in place between the fact that as Christians, our deepest need has been met by Christ. And when our deepest needs are met by Christ, the result of that, because of the sense of relief and the sense of freedom and the joy and the sense of hope that come from Christ and from being reconciled to him and restored to him because of his cross, what tends to happen inevitably for people is that their hearts start looking for places to give expression to the same compassion that they have received from Christ. It's happened over and over and over again in countless ways across the history of the Christian church. And I just, I just want to acknowledge this morning, this is sort of making the last point that I'm going to end up making, but in each one of these cases, what you have is people who are seeking the welfare of the city to which the Lord has called them. They are seeking the welfare, the shalom of the city to which the Lord their God has called them. And it's a wonderful thing. And God is to be praised when that happens. Now, this past Tuesday, we who are here and much of the rest of the world, many of us anyway, witnessed what is really remarkable and fairly infrequent in the history of the world. And that is the peaceful transfer of power from one chief executive to his successor. This is not about politics, my friends. It's not about politics. Please understand me. I don't speak as a Democrat. I don't speak as a Republican. I don't speak as somebody who's trying to find some happy middle between the two. I don't speak as a liberal. I don't speak as a conservative. I speak as someone who is saddened. And I'm I'm just telling you that I'm more sad today than I was a week ago. And I'm more sad because one of the first acts of the 44th president of the United States was to reverse an action of the previous administration on the day after the 36th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Reverse an action of the previous administration concerning federal funds given to international groups that provide abortion counseling and that perform abortions. The last eight years, those groups have had to look someplace else. But today, they have access to tax dollars, yours and mine. And those tax dollars will be used to provide counseling and also to provide abortions for those who seek them. The great tragedy and the reason that I'm so sad is because of what the president said after signing that executive order. Quote, for too long, 
international family planning assistance has been used as a political wedge political wedge issue, the subject of a back-and-forth debate that has served only to divide us. I have no desire to continue this stale and fruitless debate. Now, i, I got to go on record with you and just say that as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Presbyterian Church in America, a denomination which is officially on record concerning our conviction that the unborn are human beings, the unique and distinctive creations of the infinite personal creator God who is really there, and that abortion is wrong. As a minister of the gospel in this denomination, it is a sad and tragic thing to hear the chief executive speak that way about unborn human beings that they are reduced simply to a stale and fruitless debate. Now, that's just one issue, folks. And my concern, as saddened as I am and as rightly, I believe, passionate as I am about the unborn, it is only one issue among many that can leave Christians disheartened and discouraged And when I'm disheartened and discouraged, I need reminders. I need reminders. And that's why I go to a familiar passage, a passage that I've come to love, frankly, Jeremiah 29, a passage that provides me with some of those reminders. It's a passage that actually is a letter. It's a letter addressed to people living in exile, people living away from their homeland, It is a letter addressed to exiled people who are living under the authority of a government they do not want. It is a letter written to a group of people living in the midst of a culture they do not like. And it is filled with reminders. And here are the three reminders among many others that come out of this passage. There is a reminder here of the one who ultimately is in control. And there is a reminder here of who we are. And there is a reminder here of how we are to continue to live. To continue to live. And I use the word continue because, again, as I look around, I see the faces probably of dozens of people who are either directly or indirectly connected to ministries that do, in fact, seek the welfare of the city. And so there is here for us that third reminder that we continue to live by God's grace as we have sought by God's grace to live to this day. Now the first of the reminders, who is in control? Look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Let me read it again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. If you look back up at verse 2, I'm sorry, verse 1, the end of verse 1, the text tells us that Nebuchadnezzar had taken a people from Jerusalem to Babylon. But when God writes this letter and speaks to Israel, 
He doesn't lay that at the feet of Nebuchadnezzar. He lays it at his own feet, whom I have sent into exile in Babylon. I said to you just a minute ago that we and much of the world on Tuesday witnessed the peaceful transfer of power from one chief executive to his successor. I hope you know and I hope you take seriously and I hope you take great comfort in the fact that there is a seat of government and there is never a transfer of power from one to another respecting that seat of government. Can I remind you that last week we looked at the Revelation at a distance. And I mentioned to you that 45 times in the Revelation there is the word throne. And on that throne there is always someone seated. And the one who is seated is the eternal Lord, the God of glory, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He never leaves the throne. He never transfers power to another. He is always, perennially and forever, the one who possesses ultimate authority. Ultimate government, final government in this world, this world in which we live, resides with God. And the Israelites in Jeremiah 29, living in a place they don't want to live, living under a government they don't like, are being reminded that the Lord of hosts is still the Lord of hosts. And what is more, and this is profoundly mysterious, profoundly mysterious, it is something that you struggle with in your personal lives, it is something we struggle with corporately, whether as families or a church body or a body politic, who know that God is seated upon his throne, who know that he is the Lord of lords, who know that he is the King of kings, the thing that is so profoundly difficult for us to understand and which was profoundly mysterious for the Israelites is that they are where they are in exile because of God, not because of Nebuchadnezzar. And that is true for you. And it is true for me. You are where you are touching your personal circumstances. I am where I am touching my personal circumstances. We are where we are together. Because the king of glory has appointed in his wisdom, in his providence, by his power, and in keeping with his goodness, he has appointed that we be where we are at the human level at the level of the scene at the level of the visible you remember from revelation there are these two venues that are described there is the level of the scene the human level the level of human history and then there's the level of the unseen at the at the human level at the level of the scene the visible the physical the material at the level of marching armies and chariots and arrows and spears and elections and inauguration days and press conferences where speeches are delivered and questions are answered. It seems that history is all about kings and presidents. But brothers and sisters, you and I have the unspeakable privilege of looking beyond what can be seen. To see what can't be seen 
and to recognize that in the unseen realm, there is an invisible hand governing, guiding, directing the affairs of all men and all nations. At the human level, Nebuchadnezzar rules and reigns. But there is another seat of power. And that seat of power has been, is, and always will be occupied by the Lord of hosts. That is the Lord of creation. That's what that phrase means. The Lord of all creation. The Lord of the angelic hosts. The Lord of the physical world. The stars that are flung across the canopy of space that are many times referred to as the heavenly host. The Lord of hosts, whether animate or inanimate whether rational and thinking or simple rocks on the ground and trees growing out of the soil. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of all creation, is seated upon his throne. And he has Nebuchadnezzar under his sovereign, sovereign authority and power. And while Nebuchadnezzar thinks that it's his purpose that is being accomplished, ultimately it is the purpose of the sovereign God that is unfolding. It's a great passage in Isaiah. Not one, there's many. In fact, the whole book is a great passage. One big 66-chapter-long great passage. But in my weekly readings, this uh, remember the weekly reader that you used to get in grade school? Well, this was my weekly reader for the week. One of the days this week is a wonderful passage in Isaiah 45 that illustrates this. It's true of Nebuchadnezzar, just as it is true of Cyrus, the one who is being spoken of here. Isaiah 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped in order to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places. You may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, you by your name. Now, this is weird. Here is Cyrus, someone not even born. Isaiah is looking beyond Nebuchadnezzar. He's looking down that hallway of history. He's way past Nebuchadnezzar. He's looking beyond the Babylonian kingdom to the successor of the Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, and he identifies this one whom he names Cyrus, whom he says he will take by his hand. And in taking him by his hand, he will enable him to accomplish what? What the sovereign Lord of history determines that he should accomplish. And here's the interesting thing about that phrase in verse 45, or in in, uh, verse 1 of chapter 45. He says that he has grasped his right hand. The right hand in the scriptures is the hand of authority and power. It's the hand of distinction and privilege. Now look, if you're going to lead somebody typically... Think of a little child, if you're going to go for a walk with a little child. Most people, no offense to those who are of the left-handed sort, most people are right-handed. 
So when the child reaches out to be led, the child extends the preferred hand, the right hand. And you take the right hand with your left hand to lead the child by the right hand. You see what's being suggested there? What's being suggested is that Cyrus' right hand, though it appears at this human level to be a hand filled with power and authority, military strength, political and coercive strength, his hand is a weak hand and it needs to be held by a stronger hand. And the other thing is when you take the weak child by the right hand in your left hand, it leaves your strong powerful, authoritative right hand free to protect, to defend, to exert whatever needs to be exerted. Cyrus, from the heavenly perspective, is a mere child, a mere babe, held, upheld, sustained, enabled by the God of heaven and earth to accomplish what it is the God of heaven and earth determines should be accomplished. Mystery in this? Absolutely. Excedrin headache 162. Because if you read Isaiah 47, what you will see in Isaiah 47 is the same God who takes Cyrus by the hand, leading Cyrus to accomplish what Cyrus purposes in his heart to do. You see that God, that very same God, holding Cyrus responsible and accountable for the mistreatment of the people of God. Well, but God made him do it. God led him to do it. God employed him, used him to accomplish his purpose, and then he holds him responsible for it. Can't help you. Can't help you. Both things are simply affirmed in the scriptures. They're not... They're not resolved, not to your satisfaction and mine, how this business of the absolute power and authority of an absolutely sovereign God does not do violence to the inclinations, the wishes, the choices of free agents who are responsible before him for their choices. Those are the things that are affirmed in the scriptures. Human beings have sovereignty, but God has more. Human beings have the ability to make choices. And somehow in the mystery of God's providence, every choice that you make, I make, Nebuchadnezzar makes, Cyrus makes, accomplishes the purpose of Almighty God. And I rest in that, friends. I rest in that. Heard someone say one time, long time ago, in God's universe, there are no maverick molecules. There are no maverick kings, no maverick presidents. They all are held secure in the infinitely powerful hand of Almighty God to accomplish His bidding. That's what God is reminding Israel of as he writes to them. As they find themselves an exiled people living in a place they don't want to live under the authority of a king they don't like and didn't vote for. 
Now here's the second thing. They're not only being reminded here that God is in control as the Lord of glory, but they are being reminded who they are. Again, verse 4. When God addresses his people, he addresses them as the Lord of hosts. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. He identifies himself as the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. But there really is importance to this name because this name, we should have had an hour to unpack it, This name is the personal covenant name of God. Lots of ink has been spilled over Exodus 3, God's encounter with Moses, Moses' encounter with God, where God reveals this name to Moses. I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you to them. Lots of ink has been spilled. It comes, the name, the word does from the Hebrew Verb to be. It has to do basically with being, with with essence and things that exist and that sort of thing. But the ink has been spilled unnecessarily. If you want a great discussion of this, let me encourage you to pick up a book called Far As the Curse is Found by Michael Williams. It's on pages 17, 18, 19, somewhere in there, where he discusses the significance of this name And I'm just going to summarize it for you. The name that God employs when he first introduces himself to Moses, the name that has such great significance for the people of God as they're living in exile, as they find themselves in a place they don't want to be under the authority of a king they don't like. The significance of the name is threefold. It communicates that God is personal. When God first revealed this name to Moses, he said, I hear the groanings and the cries of my people. I see their oppression in Egypt. He's personal. He sees. I I hate to keep coming back to this. Maybe it's just for me. The God who created the universe inhabits the universe that he has made, and he sees and he knows He knows the cries and the struggles of his people. He is personal. Rocks don't care. Propositions don't care. Theological constructs don't care. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, the the framers of the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms ask the question, what is God? And they give the answer. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. There's one thing they left out which I wish they hadn't which I suppose flows out of his goodness, but I would have loved for them to have included it. He loves. And he loves his people. And he's mindful of his people in the midst of their struggles as they live as exiles. Persons love. Propositions don't. Rocks don't. 
theological constructs don't. But this God does. Carved deities don't love. They fall over. Have to be set back up. The fact that he is personal means also that he is present. Basically what what Michael Williams argues, and it's compelling to me, when God speaks to Moses and says, I am who I am, basically what he's saying is, I was with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I am with you. I'm present with you. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. He was with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when he first made the promises to the patriarchs. And Moses, I am with you. Present. Often, often in this church, as a part of our our morning liturgy, after we've prayed, there are these words of comfort, and I read these last week because they were in my readings for the week, Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not be afraid because I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I hope you hear the cross when you hear those Old Testament words. I have redeemed you and you are mine. There is one who has passed through the flood for you. There is one who has survived the fires for you. you. There is one who has been crushed for you. I have redeemed you in Jesus Christ. You are mine. You belong to me. I am your redeemer, your defender, and your friend. And I will be with you. Never to leave you or forsake you. That's what's packed into those Four little letters, Y-H-W-H, translated Yahweh. I have been with your people before, and I will be with your people into the future. Who are you? You are the people of God. You are God's covenant people, loved by him, redeemed by him. You are being kept safe by him. You are secure in him. Pass through the waters, they won't overwhelm you. Pass through the fires, you will not be burned. But just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, my shack, your shack, and a bungalow for those who need shorthand. (laughs) There is a fourth who looks like the son of a man who is in the fire with you to keep you from harm to preserve you. So who is in control? The Lord of hosts is in control, who raises up kings, who appoints kings to accomplish his purposes in the world, purposes which are mysterious and confusing. But in the midst of those confusing and mysterious purposes, you have this promise in the name of God that he is personal, 
that he is present, and then lastly, that he is powerful. Present with you in power. So how do we live? My friends, we live the same way we lived a week ago today. We're admonished. I I believe we are admonished. Not just Israel living in Babylon in the 6th century into the 6th century B.C. But, But the Israel of God today, the children of Abraham, the sons and daughters of Abraham who have embraced the promised Messiah, who live really in a land, come on, it's not, I mean, come on. There's no place on this planet I would rather live. There's no place on this planet you would rather live. But my brothers and sisters, this is not where I want to spend the rest of eternity. This is not my homeland. I'm in exile. So how do I live as an exile living in the midst of Babylon in the midst of a Babylonian captivity? How do I live as I live in Sherwood Forest with the evil Prince John having usurped the throne and the Sheriff of Nottingham running around oppressing people, arresting people, overtaxing people, and all the rest of those mean, nasty things that they did in Sherwood Forest? How do I live? I live seeking the peace of the city to which the Lord my God has called me. I I seek simply by the grace of God to get in line behind Jesus, to walk the path that he has walked before me. We seek together as a congregation by the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ to follow in his footsteps and to do what he did, which is to be engaged in ministries of word and deed, to herald the glad tidings of the gospel, And to care for those who are on the margins, those who are in need. That's what Jesus did. So can I speak personally? Scott, nothing's different this week. Where's Mike? Mike's not here. He's probably home with his feeling not so well wife. Mike and Scott work for Youth for Christ. What do they do? They seek to take the gospel to middle school and high school campuses in this this county. Nothing's changed for them. What do they do? They go in the name of Christ to herald, to proclaim the glad tidings that there is a king seated upon the throne who has inaugurated a kingdom. It's a kingdom of life and hope and forgiveness and freedom. It's a kingdom where people can be made clean because of the cross. That's what they do. And nothing has changed. What do you do at the women's refuge of Vero Beach? Herald the glad tidings of the gospel of Jesus. Donna, nothing has changed. Carolina, nothing has changed. Marguerite, nothing has changed. What do we do? We herald the glad tidings of the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus, summoning people to come to him for cleansing, for forgiveness, for freedom, encouraging them that real restoration and hope are to be found in Jesus. What do you do at the women's refuge? You care for people in need. What do you do through Youth for Christ? You care for people in need. Jim, why was Habitat established? To care for people in need. Why are you involved in the National Association for Mental Health? I don't remember the thing. Why are you doing that? Because you're Christians and because there are people 
who need the hope that you bring into an environment like that. Why do we do Tuesday's table? Why show up at Tuesday on no at noon? To herald the glad tidings of the gospel of the kingdom. Nothing has changed, my brothers and sisters. And so these are the three reminders. We seek the peace, the welfare of the city. We pray for the city. We pray that God might be gracious in this place through the heralding of the gospel, through ministries of of mercy and kindness. We pray. We pray in the same way that Timothy was admonished to encourage the people in his churches to pray when Nero was on the throne between 62 and 64 A.D. That's when that letter was written. Nero was up to his shenanigans, doing harm specifically to Christians, and they're encouraged to pray. So brothers and sisters, nothing has changed. Am I more sad? Yes, I am. Is the king still on his throne? Yes, he is. Is it a mystery to me how some things unfold? Absolutely. Is he present with his people? To be sure. Is he present personally and in power? Yes, he is. And our marching orders are the same, to be heralds of the glad tidings of the gospel of Jesus, seeking the peace of the city, the well-being of the city to which the Lord our God has called us through ministries of word and deed, praying for this place so that this gospel might take root and might renew lives, families, even communities by God's grace. God is on the throne. God is present with his people. And we continue to live, pursuing the same things that we were pursuing a week ago. Let's pray together. Lord, grant us your grace. Grant us your mercy. Grant us your help. Go before us. Stun us. Stagger us. Surprise us with what you would do through our feeble efforts. Lord, if Cyrus' hand was weak and frail, oh, how weak do we feel. But God, in the midst of our weakness and frailty, would you manifest your power for the praise of your most glorious name. We ask for Jesus' sake and in his name, amen. Let me have you stand and we'll sing the first and last verses of number 163 at the name of Jesus.